This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Bad Teacher, where I share cases of educators who committed newsworthy crimes. This week, I'll tell you the story of a man whose brilliant mind and business acumen took him from a third-floor tenement walk-up as a boy to a multi-million-dollar gated estate in Manchester-by-the-Sea, Massachusetts. A Yale University graduate who became an esteemed faculty member at MIT, Professor John J. Donovan built a fortune as the founder of computer consulting businesses and a corporate training guru. But with all of that, Donovan's greed and an untimely accusation of abuse would cause him to perpetrate a bizarre hoax that would ruin both his family relationships and his reputation. This is the last chapter in the series, Bad Teacher, the case of John J. Donovan Sr. In 1990, John J. Donovan Sr., or Professor Donovan, as he preferred to be called, was living the good life. The company he'd co-founded in 1977, Cambridge Technology Partners, had become highly profitable, winning contracts worth up to $300,000 annually from major corporations like Hewlett-Packard and Oracle. Cambridge Technology provided training seminars for their top-level management teams. Donovan and his partner, Stuart Madnick, a former postdoctoral student and colleague of Donovan's, had started the company from a concept and grew it into a multi-million dollar company in less than a decade. In 1986, Madnick agreed to be bought out of the company by Donovan. Donovan continued to grow the business, and profits soared. Between 1987 and 1989, Donovan earned $7 million, and by 1990, he was worth $100 million. Donovan was able to purchase over 500 acres of land in and around his adopted hometown of Hamilton, Massachusetts located on the north shore of Essex County. He lived in a $6.5 million farmhouse in Hamilton and owned a separate mansion and compound in Manchester-by-the-Sea. His other properties included a luxury high-rise condominium in Cambridge, facing the Charles River, and homes and land in Vermont and Bermuda. Donovan had come a long way from his humble beginnings in West Lynn, Massachusetts. The son of an elementary school teacher and a social worker, Donovan was always a serious student. He attended Lynn English High School, where his teachers noted his sharp intellectual curiosity, especially in math and science. Donovan distinguished himself enough academically to apply and be accepted to Yale University. He excelled in the Ivy League school, earning not one but two master's degrees in engineering and science. He would continue on to earn a Ph.D. at Yale, and then become a Ford Postdoctoral Fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, one of the top universities in the world in science and technology research. Donovan became a tenured professor at MIT, teaching both engineering and business. He authored several academic books on computer science and business information technology. He would also serve as assistant clinical professor of pediatrics at Tufts Medical School. Donovan wasn't just focused on academia, but also entrepreneurship. He had ideas for several technology companies and in 1977 
launched a computer services consulting company, Cambridge Institute for Information Systems, with Stuart Madnick, a former colleague at MIT. Madnick was a professor of information technology at both MIT's Sloan School of Management and its School of Engineering. Computer systems were becoming more prevalent in American corporations in the late 1970s, and Donovan and Madnick began offering software and programming seminars for management teams. The company's sales pitch was that the Cambridge Technology Seminar students would receive graduate-level training in business technology systems in just two weeks. AT&T became one of the first corporations to sign on, and Cambridge Technology started landing multi-million dollar contracts to train groups of AT&T's employees. Other major corporations followed. After Donovan bought Stuart Madnick out of the company in 1986, he rechristened the company Cambridge Technology Partners, or CTP for short. John J. Donovan relished his role as a corporate training guru. He enjoyed being front and center at his seminars, sharing his knowledge and expertise with a room full of business professionals. He began featuring himself prominently in CTP's marketing videos and brochures. He also enjoyed hobnobbing with Essex County Social Set, becoming a member of Hamilton's Myopia Hunt Club, a private fox hunting and country club. Besides Myopia's annual Thanksgiving fox hunt, members could also partake in a round of golf at the top-rated golf course or join in a game of polo. Myopia Hunt Club features one of the oldest continually running polo fields in the nation. But while Professor Donovan was experiencing success in business and his bank account swelled, his personal life was floundering. John Donovan had married his first wife, Marilyn, in 1963. After 17 years of marriage and five children, Marilyn filed for divorce in 1980. At that time, John and Marilyn's children, two sons, John Jr. and James, and three daughters, Maureen, Carolyn, and Rebecca, were between the ages of 9 and 14. Marilyn and the children moved to Danvers, Massachusetts, and after the divorce, as before, Marilyn primarily raised the children alone. Soon after the divorce settlement, Marilyn discovered that her husband had hidden assets during their marriage. She took him back to court, and Donovan was ordered to pay an additional $250,000 for the final divorce settlement. Later, Marilyn would mince no words about her feelings for her ex-husband. He was a cheat, a thief in my opinion, a dishonest man, and in no way a husband. With brains, hard work, and ingenuity, John J. Donovan had amassed a great fortune, but it appeared that the more money he made, the less he desired to part with it. Perhaps this was due to the fact that he had grown up modestly and now had a taste for the finer things money could buy. Or maybe he was of the opinion that it was through his own efforts that he'd become wealthy, and rather than looking upon this as a blessing he could share with others, believed he alone was entitled to the bulk of his fortune. Whatever the reason, it had already been established that Donovan hid assets from his wife of 17 years, and she would not be the last woman he'd try and shortchange. Donovan met his second wife after she attended one of his seminars. John and Mary Jo Donovan had a good life together, traveling, entertaining, and being involved in charitable activities. But after less than a decade, Professor Donovan found himself once again in divorce court. His second wife claimed in the divorce filing that her husband's conduct had, quote, become increasingly volatile and unpredictable, unquote. 
She further claimed that John Donovan had subjected her to abusive and cruel treatment during their marriage. Several years after they'd wed, Mary Jo said Donovan demanded she sign a postnuptial agreement. Around the same time, Donovan had just bought out his business partner and the company was seeing record profits. The divorce proceedings between Donovan and Mary Jo became even more contentious when he filed a counterclaim, alleging that it was his wife who had been the abusive partner in the marriage. A settlement was finally reached, with Mary Jo receiving the couple's five-story townhouse at 311 Marlboro Street in Boston. She also received a payout of $1 million plus $5,000 per month in spousal support. Not too shabby, until you recall that Donovan, by 1990, had a net worth of nearly $100 million. By the way, I looked up the home that Donovan's wife received in the settlement. It's gorgeous. It's a four-bedroom, four-bath, 4,300-square-foot townhouse, located two blocks from the Charles River and within walking distance of the campuses of Boston College and MIT, as well as Fenway Park and Boston's Museum of Fine Arts. Sound good to you? Well, you're in luck. According to Zillow, it is currently available for rent for a cool $17,500 per month. Well, Mary Jo Donovan was awarded this property and spousal support by the judge who stated that he didn't believe Mr. Donovan when he claimed he, quote, had no income available to him at the present time, unquote. And there were other debts that multimillionaire John J. Donovan hadn't paid. Three and a half years after he'd bought his partner, Stuart Madnick, out of the company they founded together, Donovan still owed him $1.4 million. After repeatedly trying to get Donovan to pay up, Madnick eventually had to sue his former colleague and business partner. The lawsuit was eventually settled. Contractors who'd done work for Donovan's company, CTP, filed suit for non-payment in the amount of $181,000. Even Donovan's son, John Jr., who had worked for his father for years, eventually ended up suing him. John Jr. claimed that he'd lent his father $4.8 million that Donovan had failed to repay. Donovan claimed that he owed his son nothing, but a federal judge disagreed. He ordered Sr. to pay up, stating, quote, I find that John Jr. was a truthful and credible witness, and I find the testimony of Donovan Sr. to be unworthy of belief and false in all material respects. Donovan married his third wife, Linda a graduate of Harvard who became a professor of econometrics at that esteemed university. John and Linda Donovan now lived in an estate in Manchester-by-the-Sea. The Donovan's neighbors objected when he began having workers construct a 140-foot dock. Donovan went ahead with the project anyway, and several of his neighbors, including Gary Kneb and his wife Diane, sued him to stop construction. Donovan retaliated by filing injunctions against his neighbors for harassment hiring private investigators to watch them, and having speed bumps installed on private access roads used by all the residents. While the neighborhood drama played out and the suits and countersuits wound their way through the courts, Gary Kneb told the reporter, Unfortunately, Donovan escalated a straightforward property dispute into a highly personalized, emotional, and expensive battle. Private investigators hired by Donovan began knocking on neighbors' doors, questioning them about a series of threatening phone calls Donovan claimed someone had been making to his daughter Maureen. Maureen lived in a guest house on the family's estate. A neighbor ran into Maureen and expressed her concern about the harassing phone calls she heard the young woman was receiving. Maureen said she didn't know anything about them. 
Donovan also claimed that Gary Kneb's wife Diane had threatened his workers. The Kneb's adamantly denied they had ever threatened anyone. The judge dismissed Donovan's complaint. In the end, after neighbor had been pitted against neighbor, the dock was never built. Oh, as an aside, the Kneb's house, like many in Manchester by the Sea, is very picturesque. So much so that when a filmmaker saw it from the river, he decided it was the perfect location to use in his next movie. In 2008, the Kneb's home was taken over for three weeks while filming was done for the movie The Proposal, starring Sandra Bullock, Ryan Reynolds, Mary Steenburgen, and Betty White. Betty White, a well-known animal lover, fell in love with the Kneb's dog, Mocha. Donovan's ability to take a somewhat minor disagreement and turn it into a full-blown war, seeing enemies at every turn, plus his need to discredit these perceived enemies by leveling false accusations against them, would culminate in a bizarre accusation against his own children after a falling out over money. While their father had been busy building his companies and financial portfolio, his five children had also built impressive resumes. His son, John J. Donovan Jr., earned an undergraduate degree from Yale and a graduate degree from Harvard. John Jr. worked for his father at Cambridge Technology Partners before becoming the owner of the Manchester Athletic Club. He grew and expanded the club into multiple locations. John Jr. also owned an organic farm. Donovan Jr. founded a number of successful startup companies and used his wealth to give back to his community. He and his wife Megan were philanthropists who donated generously to several causes. James Donovan, a graduate of MIT's Sloan School of Management and Harvard Law School, became managing director at Goldman Sachs in Boston. He and his family moved to Virginia, where he became a business associate of Mitt Romney, the former Republican nominee for President of the United States. James Donovan and Romney became friends, and Donovan later served as one of his top fundraisers in his 2012 campaign. James Donovan also served as the economic advisor to Jeb Bush in 2016 and was recently nominated by President Donald Trump to hold the number two job in the Treasury Department. Donovan, however, withdrew his name from consideration, saying he wanted to, quote, focus on his family at this time. John Donovan Sr. also had three daughters who were very accomplished. Maureen earned an MBA from the University of Rochester and, like her own mother, raised five children. Carolyn Donovan is a graduate of Yale and Georgetown Universities. She is a doctor and has two children. Rebecca Donovan graduated with an MBA from MIT's Sloan School of Management and later married a venture capitalist. Raised primarily by their mother, Marilyn, the Donovan children began spending more time with their father after he married his third wife, Linda. By that time, they were all adults starting families of their own. Donovan, by that time, also owned homes in Vermont and Bermuda, and the family got together for vacations and holidays. They visited their father and Linda for holidays in the Caribbean and ski trips at their home in Vermont. Donovan must have trusted that he and his children were close, because in 1992, he began transferring portions of his fortune into Bermuda-based trust funds, naming his children as his beneficiaries. Was this just the actions of a loving father wanting to provide for his children? Perhaps. But a more cynical person might also point out that transferring millions of dollars to Bermuda banks and placing those funds into a trust for his children provided Donovan with a nice tax shelter. Donovan had two ex-wives as well as several lawsuits pending, 
and placing the bulk of his wealth into offshore accounts would make his money more difficult or maybe even impossible for the courts to touch. The trust accounts were overseen by independent trustees who had final say over any investments. According to Donovan, a portion of the funds were to be set aside for various charities as well as open space preservation projects he had been involved with since the 1970s. However, the trustees decided to use some of the money held in trust to purchase property owned by Donovan. The titles were then put into Donovan's children's names as part of their trust. Donovan continued to live on and have access to these properties. For a while, things continued just fine for Professor Donovan with he and his wife enjoying their money and properties while the bulk of the fortune was safely locked away in offshore trust accounts. And it was quite a fortune by this time. In total, Donovan would become founder and or chairman of 28 companies. Nine were public companies and included Cambridge Technology Partners, Cambridge Technology Group, and CTG Samsung Partners. At one time, Donovan's companies were valued at a total of $10.6 billion. Donovan was also a big donor to political campaigns. He became influential in government, having worked for and advised Presidents Bush, Reagan, Carter, and Robert Mueller, former director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Donovan and his wife Linda gave modestly to community causes, like setting aside lands and creating a ball field for local children, and in 2001, establishing a $50,000 scholarship at Yale. He also donated computers to an elementary school in Lynn. But in 2002, allegations of past abuse by one of Donovan's children would be raised and set off a series of events that can only be described as bizarre. In 2002, John Donovan Sr.'s daughter Maureen accused her father of sexually molesting her when she was a child. Maureen would say that she had disclosed this information to several doctors in the years leading up to 2002, when she finally revealed it to her family. When her siblings were made aware of the abuse, they immediately supported their sister. James and Rebecca Donovan denounced their father, saying that from that day forward, they wanted nothing to do with him. As the legal owners of the home he was residing in in Hamilton, the Donovan children ordered him out of the house. They also demanded he give up his membership at the Hunt Club, as they and their families were also members, and they preferred not to run into him there. Donovan called the allegations of abuse completely false and refused to leave his home. He then accused his children of siphoning off money from the trusts held in their names. It was later reported that $29 million worth of cash and assets had already been legally dispersed to the five children of John Donovan Sr. shortly before they'd confronted him about the abuse allegations. Donovan claimed that his children were accusing him of abuse as a way to blackmail him to take over his fortune of $100 million in property and cash. Donovan's attorneys valued the undeveloped land alone that he had acquired on the north shore of Boston and in Vermont at between $60 and $100 million. Donovan alleged that his children, encouraged by James, had threatened to go public with the sexual abuse allegations unless he agreed to their demands. They denied that they had ever threatened to take the information public. In 2003, Donovan was able to reach a truce with his heirs. They agreed to give their father access to several of his properties, as well as the use of the house in Manchester as his primary residence. In exchange, they wanted a $6 million payment and an acknowledgement in writing 
that he did not own the property. Donovan signed the agreement, but later said he'd been coerced into it. In 2004, four of Donovan's five children, John Jr. was attempting to remain neutral, sued their father in court. The case was sent to a mediator in June of that year. Donovan now began leveling worse accusations against his children. He accused his daughter of making up the abuse claims only after she and her husband had embezzled over $400,000 from the family-owned fitness company to pay for their own personal expenses. Maureen's attorney said that this claim by Donovan was completely false and that no money had left the business account that wasn't a valid expense. But it was James Donovan who his father thought was the main instigator. Insisting that his son James was, quote, out to get him, John and Linda Donovan filed two restraining orders against him and also filed a lawsuit alleging James had harassed them. Linda claimed that James had menaced her while she skied in Vermont. She also accused him of accosting her while she rode her horse in Hamilton and while she was in the Hunt Club's coat room. Then in October 2003, Donovan told police that a bullet had been fired into his home. A report stated, quote, I am fearful that I or my wife Linda could be hurt or killed and believe I am in imminent danger, unquote. In 2004, John Jr. also told his father that he no longer wanted to be in contact with him. He left the company where he'd worked with Donovan Sr. for years. Later that year, Donovan accused John Jr. of breaking into his Vassar Street office. The charges were later dropped. On December 16, 2005, John Donovan Sr. left his office building on Vassar Street and got into his car in the parking lot. It was about 8.30 p.m. Moments later, Donovan made a frantic call to 911. I've been shot inside my car, Donovan told the dispatcher. In a long, rambling 911 call that lasted over 10 minutes, John Donovan said he had just entered his vehicle when two men approached him speaking in, quote, heavily accented English, unquote. He believed they were Russian. Donovan said that as the men approached the driver's side window, they began firing. He believed they had fired about four or five times. As the dispatcher summoned a patrol unit and an ambulance to Donovan's location, he continued talking. He told the dispatcher he suspected his son James was behind the attack. He also insisted she send police immediately to his home, as he believed that his wife was also in danger. Tell Linda I love her, he told the dispatcher before hanging up. When the police arrived, Donovan was still alert enough to share the story with them as well. He reported that the shooters were close enough to fire off two rounds into his abdomen, but one bullet had only grazed his left side. Donovan was taken to Massachusetts General Hospital where he was treated for a non-life-threatening wound and sent home the following day. Donovan insisted that the shooters had fired directly at him, but attributed his good luck to his belt buckle deflecting the bullets. Detectives investigated Donovan's claim that his son James was involved in sending two Russian mobsters to have him killed. Donovan told detectives that his son worked for Goldman Sachs and accused him of laundering $180 million through that financial institution. Donovan's wife, Linda, was also targeted because, quote, she knows James stole $180 million from the Donovan Trust, Donovan said. Police went to John Donovan's home that night and found signs of a possible break-in. There was a broken window in the home. Donovan suspected that someone had fired a weapon through the window. Officers were dispatched to James Donovan's home, 
waking him and his wife, who was three months pregnant with their third child. It was in the wee hours of the morning when detectives arrived to question James Donovan and search his home. Nothing was found of note, but James was later served with a restraining order which prohibited him from going near his father's home or office. Later, when James was cleared of any involvement, the restraining order was withdrawn. Detectives right away doubted John Donovan's account of the shooting. The professor's belt buckle did show signs of damage, but he himself had received only a flesh wound. Donovan said the bullets had shattered the car's windshield and driver's side window, spraying him with glass. But at the hospital, doctors removed a piece of glass from Donovan's ear that was on the opposite side from where the glass had been broken. But most damning of all was a note found in Donovan's jacket pocket. Jotted on a menu from the Algonquin Club, the note appeared to be a to-do list for the shooting. Glass, question mark, gun, question mark, it read, as well as where shot and belt, question mark. A thorough investigation was made into Donovan's version of the attempt on his life. The Cambridge Police, State Police, and MIT Campus Police were all assigned to various parts of the investigation. It was reported that approximately $100,000 was spent on an investigation that was ultimately deemed to be a hoax. Authorities determined that John Donovan himself had staged the attack. Donovan was an experienced shooter who had access to weapons. The weapon used in the shooting was never recovered. They believed that the actual shooting had been done at another location. A video camera discovered at a nearby building was trained on the parking lot where the alleged attack occurred. When investigators viewed the camera footage, they discovered images of John Donovan reaching up to reposition the camera so it pointed up and would not record the parking lot where the alleged attack took place. Attorney General Martha Coakley charged John J. Donovan Sr. with filing a false police report in May of 2006. She told reporters that the investigation into Donovan's false report, quote, took more of our resources than some of our actual homicide cases, unquote. Assistant District Attorney Adrian Lynch presented the state's theory of Donovan's crime. Donovan was accused of shooting himself in the abdomen positioning the weapon so that it would only cause a superficial wound to the left side of his body. The prosecutor said that three days before the shooting, Donovan had rearranged the camera outside of his office so it wouldn't record the parking lot that evening. He then shot up his own minivan and called the police. He'd forgotten to remove the to-do list that outlined his plans to shoot himself in order to frame his son. Lynch told the judge, John Donovan repeatedly set out to take revenge and frame his son James in an attempt to gain an advantage in ongoing litigation. In August 2007, John Donovan was convicted of staging the hoax. The judge sentenced him to two years probation, citing no prior convictions and his age as reasons for not sentencing him to jail time. Donovan was also fined $625 in order to perform 200 hours of community service. The prosecutor asked the judge to compel Donovan to reimburse the government for the expenses associated with investigating his false claim. However, the judge said he had no legal power to do so. At the sentencing, the judge described the 65-year-old's behavior as, quote, nothing short of bizarre and premeditated, unquote. Donovan was also ordered to undergo a psychiatric examination. Finally, the judge issued a lifetime stay-away order. He was prohibited from having any contact with his son James, as well as his three daughters and their spouses. 
In a joint statement, James and his siblings said they were satisfied with the judge's ruling. In addressing their father's actions, they said, His bizarre allegations, including that this case involved hundreds of millions of dollars, are as fictitious and phony as the ones about Russians with rifles. Professor John Donovan Sr. also commented on the judge's decision. He insisted that he'd had nothing to do with the shooting and that he found the verdict a complete surprise. John Donovan Jr. became ill with cancer when he was just 40 years old. In April of 2015, he died at the age of 43 of adrenal cancer. Before his death, he was concerned for the welfare of his wife and two children and wanted to ensure that his father could not get his hands on his estate. To make sure that nothing was left open for interpretation, John Jr. made sure to videotape his final wishes as well as put them in writing. But unknown to him, his father had been secretly recording him for some time. John Donovan Sr. then took these recordings and edited them together to use in court as proof that his son had bequeathed millions of dollars of his estate to his father. Donovan also tried to take sole control of a land deal that had been brokered by father and son many years earlier. Several hundred acres of land in Essex County was to be sold to the Donovan Trust for public usage. Now Donovan tried to take the proceeds for himself without sharing any of the funds with his son's widow and children. John Jr.'s wife and siblings immediately knew that he would not have left a dime to his father as he had also disowned him in 2004, even before Donovan tried to frame his brother for the shooting. John Jr. had also asked his family not to invite his father to his funeral. In December of 2017, John Donovan Sr., now age 75, was indicted on seven counts of forgery for attempting to falsify his son's will that would have transferred the titles to properties in Hamilton, Manchester, Beverly, and Essex to him. He was also indicted on a single count of attempted larceny for faking the signature of his late son in, quote, an attempt to swindle family members out of property, unquote. But Professor Donovan was a very bad teacher indeed, because he would be charged with still more crimes. In March 2016, a law firm obtained a $1.2 million default judgment against him for unpaid legal fees. In addition, Donovan was accused of misusing funds raised for a startup called Send It Later, Inc. for personal use. The shareholder suit alleged that Donovan used the firm to support his own lifestyle and not for the benefit of the company, in which he made no financial investment of his own. Finally, in July of this year, 2020, 77-year-old John Donovan was found liable for nearly $3 million in damages, attorney's fees, and interest for using funds invested in a now-failed startup for personal expenses, including his country club membership, hair treatments, property tax bills, and other expenses. It appears that John and Linda Donovan were attempting to raise funds in order to pay off some of these fines and judgments because in July of 2017, an estate auction was held to sell off many of their personal possessions from several Donovan properties, including the Donovan's properties Seagate in Manchester, Devon Glen in Hamilton, Windsor House in Tuckerstown, Bermuda, Pomfret Farm in Pomfret, Vermont, and Indian Ridge Farm in Ipswich. Among the items for sale were several thousand dollars worth of jewelry, antique sleighs, 
horse-drawn buggies and vintage Vespa scooters, artwork, silverware, model boats, and antique furniture. The estate auction was featured in many publications with the following details. Kaminsky Auctions is pleased to announce an on-site auction featuring the collection of Professor John Jay and Linda Donovan at the stables of Devon Glen Farm, 482 Bay Road, Hamilton, Massachusetts. The collection includes outstanding 18th and 19th century antiques and furnishings, sterling silver, sculpture, fine art, porcelain, and a collection of antique horse carriages and antique cars. Both Professor John Jay and Linda Donovan were avid fox hunters and equestrian enthusiasts. Their collection of antique horse-drawn carriages includes two late 19th to 20th century horse-drawn fifth-wheel carriages, a horse-drawn single-axle cart on two wheels with a tufted burgundy velvet seat. There are also two sleighs dating from the 19th century to the early 20th century. The first is a horse-drawn single-runner sleigh and the second a double-runner sleigh, both in excellent condition. The couple also collected Cape Ann seascape paintings by such noted artists as Donald Allen Mosher, Paul Streisick, and John Caggiano. On offer are lovely seascapes of Rocky Neck, Rockport, and scenes of Gluster. Antique Georgian and federal furniture abound in the collection. Highlights include an impressive Georgian mahogany secretary bookcase. There is an exquisite 19th century federal mahogany secretary bookcase on bracket feet. Other furniture highlights include a 19th century English mahogany campaign chest and a circa 1870s Victorian pool table with an elaborate inlay. Several gentlemen's watches are on offer, including a Rolex Cellini and, of particular importance, an 18-karat white gold Patek Philippe with a moon phase dial. Consistent with the elegance and refinement of the six Donovan residences, the collection includes silver and silver services, important KPM porcelain, and china. Too numerous to mention are various oriental rugs, crystal chandeliers, gilt mirrors and ship models, as well as a vast collection of furniture and furnishings. The auction will take place in the spectacular setting of Devon Glen Farm under tents in the horse paddocks in front of the stable at Devon Glen. The magnificent horse stabling has featured in many equestrian design books and magazines. Well, that's a lot of fancy stuff, but I think the only thing I might have bid on was that vintage Vespa. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Next month, we have an extra spooky and straight-out creepy series for you as we count down the days until Halloween. Make sure you're subscribed to Once Upon a Crime so you don't miss an episode. Check out our Facebook page for information about the episodes and other announcements about the podcast. Just look for Once Upon a Crime Podcast on Facebook. You can now leave us a voicemail message on our website. Go to truecrimepodcast.com and click on the microphone in the lower right-hand corner. You can give your feedback about episodes, suggest cases you'd like to hear on the show, or ask a question. Your message might be played on the show in the future. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative and research assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music for the show is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, stay safe and be good to one another. Mm -hmm.